This is Car Expert. This would be a great opportunity for Toyota to give us something cool instead of leaving us and, and milking the Australian market with old stuff. With the Crosstrek getting a, an, an overhaul, it definitely has all the makings of something that can be one of their top sellers. If Jeep is going to evolve into this premium brand it wants to be in Australia, it needs to appeal to more people than just the people who love Jeeps previously. Hello, Tony Crawford. Hey, Mandy, how are you? Very well, thank you. And g'day, William Stockford. Hey, Mandy. We probably should maybe mention this. Uh, Paul Marrick is, was nominated for an award and it turns out he ended up winning it. He Wasn't did. Uh, so we went last night over to Marvel Stadium, which is just a short walk from the office uh, here in Melbourne, uh, for the Combank Young Hero Awards Night. Um, so it's it's an awards program that's uh, – uh, focused on uh, startups in particular. Um, and Paul was up for an award, Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, it's it's probably the most uh, the most important award of the night because they put it last. That's generally how it works, Ooh, right? wow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was building up to that. Uh, so he was up against four other uh, nominees and uh, yeah, he ended up taking home the award. Uh, wow. So it was a little bit of a celebration. On a Tuesday night, so <laughs> couldn't exactly <laughs> go on the town afterwards. Um, but no, it was, it was a, a, a good little event. Uh, and congratulations to Paul. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, well, the big uh, the big thing for Paul and, of course, his uh, director, producer, Igor and Sean, that team, they've just ticked over 330,000 YouTube subscribers on our uh, Car Expert YouTube channel. And that is uh, literally destroying the competition and as it run and it's running away from them again on another level. So, you know, a uh, big shout out to those guys. They've done an amazing job, you know. Yeah. They work so hard. Um, they really do. Um, and Paul did make sure to say like and subscribe in his acceptance speech. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. And did he open it up with saying, G'day, I'm Paul? You know, I don't think he did. Oh, no. That's very off-brand. I don't remember that. It was a good speech too. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, don't, don't recall him saying, G'day, I'm Paul. Oh, oh that's, um, that's awesome news, awesome news. Um, now, Croft, you wanted to have a chat about uh, your time behind the wheel of the Huracan Technica. Yes, Mandy, I do. Um, uh, I think there wouldn't be a person in the world that doesn't love a Lamborghini. Um, and uh, the Technica, so we were there ostensibly for the Revoluto uh, launch. And then after that, um, they very kindly offered me a Technica, Huracan Technica, to uh, take up to where I used to live in Italy, about 400 k's away towards the Italian Alps, uh, which I uh, absolutely accepted. And um, jetted off is the word in this thing because it's rear-wheel drive. So basically it's a rear-wheel drive um uh, version of uh, the Huracan, much faster than the standard Huracan, which is all-wheel drive, um, and a little bit lighter, about 48 kilos, roughly uh, lighter than Huracan two-wheel drive, um, and, and this takes it to a new level. It sits lower, rides lower, faster in the corners, and uh, I, I, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say what I was sitting on on the Autostrada, um, I don't know whether that'll get me into trouble, but um, 
it was it was under three hundred k's an hour. Can I just say? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow! Not much. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it just sat there beautifully. And then, unfortunately, most of the driving was on the Autostrada. And then I did get an eleven k sort of hill climb road. Uh, back up to uh, when Albors and I were last um, there with Lamborghini in 2009. Um, we went days. up to an old 16th century monastery and uh, clouded in, uh, shrouded in clouds and mist. And, and it was the same exact thing, but it, there was an 11 clay climb uh, up to this and where some of the rock walls were on both sides. And you can imagine the V10 singing and bouncing, <laughs> echoing off both sides of the rock wall. It was one of the best. And you just realise how good uh, Lamborghini have got their vehicles in terms of handling. We always used to think Ferrari was it when it comes to uh, handling. Um, but Lamborghini have been building fantastic handling sports cars for uh, over a decade now. Um, and they are extraordinary. And I don't, the one thing I thought I would miss was the all wheel drive, uh, version of the Huracan or the Evo. And, um, and I didn't, I really would have to think twice if you were buying uh, a Lamborghini, um, to look at the Technicas, you don't really miss the all wheel drive grip because this thing just had a ton of grip. Um, and it's uh, priced quite well in terms of Lamborghini's hierarchy at about 440 grand. It's a lot cheaper than the uh, all-wheel drive standard Evo or a Khan. So that's one thing to consider, and it looked fabulous too, sitting a bit lower with a little sort mm -hmm. of uh, large spoiler on the back that kind of segued into the, the body, if you like morphed into the body. You didn't really see this this uh, spoiler. So I like that because I'm not a huge fan of big spoilers on cars, uh, except perhaps the Porsche, the new Porsche GT3 <laughs> RS, which has the biggest spoiler you've ever seen. Uh, um, so are, anyway. we, um, are we seeing this review soon? Or uh, yes, I'm in the, uh, yeah. yes, I have written that review, Mandy. Oh, good. I almost forgot. Nice. I've I moved on to another one, but um, uh, hopefully it'll be up soon. That's uh, JWO's department, so hopefully it'll push it live on the weekend so everyone can have a, a lovely read of uh, and see the pictures of this amazing monastery where we drove to. To talk about this week's car news, we have Jade Crudentino back in for this week. Hello, Jade. Hello, Mandy. How are you this week? Very good, thank you. Now, we've seen some photos of the unveiling of the 2024 Toyota Tacoma, and it looks like Australia has had a part in it. Yeah, that's correct. It is a little bit of a tongue-twisted Toyota Tacoma. Anyway, I'm going to try my best to... Uh get through this. So Toyota USA has revealed the new Tacoma for its local market. Now, unfortunately, the Tacoma will not be sold here in Australia, but like you mentioned, Australia did play a small role in developing the midsize pickup truck. So the new Tacoma is based on the TNGAF body-on-frame architecture that will also be used in the Tundra Ute, the Sokoa SUV and the 300 series Land Cruiser. It is expected that Toyota will continue the body-on-frame architecture for the next-gen Hilux, Land Cruiser Prado and Fortuna. There are three powertrain options. Uh, it starts with the base model SR and it has a 2.4-litre iForce turbocharged four-cylinder petrol engine that produces 170 kilowatts of power and 329 newton metres of torque. 
Other trim levels will receive a 2.4 liter turbo that produces 207 kilowatts and 430 newton meters, which is mated to an eight speed automatic. Now there is also a six speed manual that has automatic rev matching, anti-stall technology, and the ability to start in gear. Now this is something that I would love as someone who needs to learn how to drive manual and this might be my first car. Um, this engine is detuned uh, and offers 201 kilowatts and 420 newton meters of torque. Now, just for reference, the Hilux, which is sold locally, doesn't offer any of these powertrains. It offers a 2.8 liter turbocharged diesel with 150 kilowatts and 500 newton meters and the 2.7 liter petrol um, offers 120 kilowatts and 245 newton meters. So very different. Um, Toyota will bring the iForce Max hybrid powertrain to the Tacoma range, which uses the 2.4 liter four cylinder turbo. Now it's coupled with a 36 kilowatt electric motor, which is built into an eight speed automatic transmission. Now this powertrain can produce outputs of 243 kilowatts and 630 newton meters, which is pretty impressive. Now, there is a lot more specs uh, via the article on the Car Expert website, so I definitely recommend if you are interested to go and check that out. Now, Toyota will offer... Sorry, Toyota says deliveries will begin for the Tacoma later this year, but for those customers who are looking for the hybrid powertrain, they'll have to wait until early 2024. Now, the Tacoma has been rebuilt, uh, obviously, on this new platform, now offering a hybrid powertrain and much more. Although Toyota hasn't confirmed anything, it is exciting to see that the next generation Hilux may take some components from its not-too-distant cousin, I'm going to leave it to you guys, but what do you think will be carried over to the next generation Hilux and what are your thoughts? Can, can I just say again, Toyota have left us with the scraps and, you know, the remnants of old stuff compared to this great looking vehicle that looks a bit like a, you know, like a smaller Tundra, to be honest. But, mm. um, and also you get all these great uh, variants like TRD Pros and, all this stuff that people would kill for in Australia. And as the first comment, by the way, Jade, um, in that article, is if the next Hilux was identical to this, they would outsell the Ranger. Petrol, turbo, hybrid, power, yay, type thing. Um, and, and Ranger will get it eventually, but not till 2027. So this would be a great opportunity for Toyota to give us something cool um, instead of leaving us and, and milking the Australian market for the, you know, for the old stuff. And I don't know, it just feels like Toyota constantly do this. Like um, while the bulk of obviously America is a huge market for Toyota, but you know, Toyota, Australians have been supporting Toyota since the sixties, you know, give us a go. That's my, a bit emotional, but um, that's my take. I reckon just let's just give Toyota a chance here. Um, we don't know when the next Hilux is coming, but it could borrow a lot from this Tacoma. Uh, the new the the current Hilux and the current Tacoma have been around for roughly the same amount of time, so hopefully it won't be too much of a wait for the next Hilux. Hopefully we will see one of these hybrid powertrains here. Um, obviously they're, they're probably going to to be quite different vehicles overall, but I think we could probably expect some of the styling elements of this Tacoma to carry over to the next Hilux, fingers crossed. Um, 
because it looks it does look absolutely fantastic it really does look like a shrunken tundra um the i know we always do the the grass is always greener but the the tacoma in the u.s i don't know if the if the grass is that much greener in terms of the current model um, because it's still got that 2.7 litre petrol as the base engine. They've got a 3.5 litre petrol V6 but no diesels so that, you know, we'd kind of be a non-starter here. Uh, But, yeah, fingers crossed next Hilux looks like this, has a hybrid powertrain and doesn't take too long to get here. Mm. Look at those seats on the TRD Pro. I don't know if anyone's seen them. Yeah, what's the go with the back of them? They've got, like, uh, pistons built in for... Probably for hard landings. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't um, figure it out either. What do you think, Will? Have you seen it? Yeah, and I uh, am not exactly clear either no. what's going on there. But it's certainly uh, certainly a distinctive interior as well. Mm-hmm. So, but I yeah. agree with Will that the current Tacoma doesn't look great at all. I think the Hilux looks better, but this is another vehicle entirely. And um, I, I just think, yeah, well, bring it on. I mean. Yeah, I mean, as I said, this has been one of Toyota's major markets for many, many years, and um, it'd be nice to one, you know, once get an opportunity to get something when everyone else gets it. <laughs> yeah. That's all I say. All right. Uh, now the next story, Jade. Uh, we've got a new limited edition Mini coming out, and it looks like it could be the last one with a stick shift. I know, this is so sad. So Mini has revealed the limited edition Mini John Cooper Works 1 to 6 edition. Now that's what it's called. It's got five bloody words in there. Anyways, the overseas <laughs> uh, reports suggest that this will be the last manual that the brand will make. Mini plans to go all electric by 2030. Now, as it winds down its internal combustion engine range, it's only natural that the manual transmission will also die out. The limited edition model will be offered with one trim option and a single powertrain variant. There will be 999 examples made of the model and it appears Australia aren't on the list to receive the future collector's item. Mini will offer a two-litre four-cylinder turbocharged petrol engine mated with a six-speed manual transmission. The engine will produce 172 kilowatts of power and can hit zero to 100 kilometres per hour in just 6.3 seconds. It'll be finished with an all-black metallic paint and piano black exterior accents. I recommend you head over to the article on carexpert.com.au to see the photos because this car is very cool. They have stamped accents and badges all over the car, which gives it a very real, unique feel. Now, the car starts from £39,600, which when you roughly translate that into Australian dollars is $73,953. Do you think this car will become a collector's item and do you wish it would be available in Australia? I don't know if it'll be a collector's item. Um, I think the a car like the original uh, GP, the first GP with the supercharged engine, which had the supercharged wine, that's a collector's car, uh, 100%. It was a lot quicker than this too, by the way. This is only 6.3, as you said, which is not overly quick these days for a hot hatch. When you've got Type R's doing 5.4 and uh, I30Ns, I think, doing 5.4, so... Uh, not quick. Um, don't know whether it's different enough. I like the um, delivery and the paint, mm. uh, but I'll let Will have his say because he's uh, uh, chomping at the bit. 
I'm just a bit surprised it's not coming here because, you know, we get, you know, Hopkirk and Untamed editions and seemingly every special edition mini that comes. So we're missing out on this one. I think uh, we knew that manual minis were going to go away with the, with the company transitioning to an electric-only lineup. Um, but it's, it, it is sad with each year seeing more and more manual uh, vehicles disappear, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in something like a mini where you'd think, you know, they don't make manual Corollas for Australia anymore, and I don't. I don't expect that they really accounted for a great percentage of sales. But of all the vehicles that would offer a manual transmission, you'd kind of think that Minis might have a higher percentage kind of take rate there. So, but evidently not high enough. Um, so, yeah, a bit sad. All right, SUV news now, Jade. Uh, we've got some details on Honda's new Rav Four competitor. Yeah, that's correct. Now, after confirming pricing of the Honda ZRV earlier this month, Honda Australia has now released the full specifications for its new midsize crossover. So, size-wise, like you mentioned, Mandy, the new edition slots in between the HRV and the larger CRV, and will rival the likes of the Mazda CX-5 and Toyota Rav4. Now, all models come standard with five years of Honda Connect subscription. The app lets you control the lights, climate controls, and door locks remotely. Pricing is drive away and starts from $40,200 for the VTI-X. The VTI-L is $43,200. The VTI-LX is $48,500. And the flagship hybrid is available from $54,900. There are two powertrains to choose from, a 1.5-litre turbocharged four-cylinder producing 131 kilowatts of power and 240 newton metres of torque. It is mated to a continuously variable transmission, or CVT. While the hybrid features a two-liter hybrid four-cylinder with two electric motors and an eCVT, total system outputs combined are 135 kilowatts and 350 newton meters. Now, the ZRV is yet to be in-cap tested, but comes with a suite of safety features, including lane keep assist, driver attention warning, AEB, and 11 airbags. As standard, the base model ZRV receives LED headlights, 10.2-inch digital instrument cluster, dual climate control, wireless CarPlay, and wired Android Auto, as well as a 9-inch touchscreen infotainment system. I will jump through to the flagship model just in the interest of time, but you can read the full specs via the carexpert.com.au website. So the flagship hybrid will receive a heated steering wheel, heated front and rear seats, wireless phone charging, satellite navigation, a smart key card shift by wire gear selector, and black leather upholstery. There are five options to choose from, including blue, gray, white, black and red. Now I saw one on Monday here in Melbourne and I was impressed by how it looks and the size. Do you guys think it will do well in Australia and why? Uh, I think it's going to kill it. Um, I'm a massive fan of what Honda are doing right now and this is based on a Civic and if anyone's driven uh, the current Civic, um, you are bound to be impressed if you aren't already. This is a fantastic chassis. And, um, you know, you've got to remember it also is this is the chassis for the Type R, which is their hot hatch, which has been lauded globally by um, every single journalist that's ever driven it. 
uh, and people have actually driven this car and gone straight to uh, their PC and ordered these things online. That's how successful this car is. It's the same platform that you're getting in this. And I've got to say, um, having I'm just writing the Maserati Gracali review at the moment, and the front end is very, very similar um, to Gracali. It's really quite nice, particularly with that red paintwork and the black um, the black mouth with the black grills, the same sort of vertical slots as the Gracali. Yeah. I just I just want to point out to those listening at home that Tony is actually wearing his glasses as he's talking, so I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> particularly puzzled, but continue, Tony. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I just love it. Um, and, you know, there is just a hint of that Maserati. I don't say it's a copy or anything like that. But um, I do like what Honda is doing at the moment. And, you know, to kick off at 40 drive away, you know, people were saying, oh, Hondas are expensive. But we've all, we've all worked out in everything that they do in every segment, they're not the most expensive at all, and yet they come with a stack of kit. They drive amazingly well. Um, I mean, you know, in the short, what's not to like? It, uh, the pricing does seem to stack up pretty well. So Honda is calling this a mid-sized SUV, and it, it does compare well in size to certain mid-sized SUVs, but you can kind of see at the low end of the mid-sized kind of size spectrum and the high end of the small SUV size spectrum, there's there's a bit of overlap. So, you know, a, a Mazda CX-5, for example, is not that much bigger than a Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross, but VFAX says, you know, they're different segments. Um, I think... For the size of vehicle and the level of equipment, the pricing does seem to be pretty on the level there. It would be nice to see some more affordable hybrid versions instead of just it being limited to the top spec model. I think what um, has been most curious here is now that we've seen ZRV pricing, we know that the next generation CRV is coming here. It's a little bit bigger, but it's it's not like it's suddenly jumped up to like patrol size. You know, it's, it's still pretty comfortably a mid-size SUV. I do wonder how that is going to be positioned within the Honda lineup and what what the, that range is going to look like. Um, but Honda has yet to confirm specific launch timing um, for the CRV. Yeah, you're, you're dead right about the size you know, in the in-between thing because it's only got 370 litres in the boot, which is not substantial, but it does expand out to 1,300 plus when you fold the seats. And, and folks, remember that Honda rear seats fold almost dead flat uh, and they have a fantastic architecture with space. Um, so I, I would I would suggest that what it loses in the boot Behind the rear seats, it makes up for if you have to carry longer stuff or bikes or surfboards and that. I think it's also worth uh, noting here that this is actually going to be called, this actually is already being called the HRV in North America. So Honda just kind of went on two different tracks there. They replaced the HRV we're all familiar with, with, with two different models, um, a, a global smaller size model um, and then this which is called the ZRV in most markets um, so you know in in you know in one market this is considered more of a smaller vehicle here it's going to be pitched right up against the RAV4 which I think correct me if I'm wrong is, is a little bit larger overall but you're right Tony Hondas do tend to be quite well packaged so I, I can't wait to actually sit inside one and guys don't forget the service prices first five years capped at 199 bucks, and in this day and age, that's pretty freaking good, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Agreed. And uh, our last story, Jade, uh, we're going to get the new Arbath electric hot hatch here. I am super excited for this. 
Yes, so Abarth has revealed its take on the electric Fiat 500e. It will be offered with only one variant when it comes to Australia later in 2023. The brand is yet to release pricing but has confirmed a single Turismo trim will be offered. It's understood, however, that Abarth will launch a limited edition Scorpio in Nissima model. The special edition model will feature unique decals and a digital certificate of authenticity. Out of the 1,949 Scorpion Anissima built, only 219 will come to Australia. The 500E uses a single front-mounted electric motor producing 113.7 kilowatts of power and 235 newton meters of torque, which is good for a 0 to 100 kilometer time of 7 seconds. It uses a 42 kilowatt hour battery with a 252 kilometer range based on the WLTP cycle. It supports DC fast charging up to 85 kilowatts, reaching 80% capacity in 35 minutes. The electric model will offer improved weight distribution and a longer wheelbase than the petrol model. Also present on the 500E is the Abarth sound generator, which the company says adds a signature and unmistakable roar that produces the sound of an Abarth petrol engine. I'm interested, Jay, but uh, and I love the colour and I love everything about it, but 0 to 107 seconds ain't that mm. quick, yeah. um, especially for an electric vehicle. But it does say... Um, in the article, um, that it accelerates from 20 k's to 40 k's an hour, uh, 50% better, um, whatever that means. Um, so I'm assuming, you know, it'll really get off the mark quicker, uh, and you'll be able to park in that left lane at the lights and uh, zip away from everyone. Um, in your fluoro, venom, whatever green that is, um, <laughs> Uh, but I do like it. Um, we don't have a price, though, do we? I, I, I'm scared to even find out what the price is. I, I think it's going to be yep. big bucks for very small amount of metal. How much um, do you reckon, Croft? Uh, I'm thinking seventy. Yeah, I'm thinking seventy, um, give or take, and that's a lot of bucks. Um, what about considering you, I'm looking to buy a used five nine five for about twenty. <laughs> that makes a good noise with four pipes. But, yeah, look, I, I, I think it's great what they're doing. Um, let's hope it comes well under 70 grand. Um, maybe there'll be other models um, uh, that will be a cheaper. I don't know, but um, mm. it's just a lot of money. But, you know, the practicality of these vehicles in this day and age, if you live in one of the three cap eastern seaboard cities, is phenomenal where this can park, um, you know. Without going to the extent of buying the plastic Citron um, and where you can park literally anywhere, uh, this is a good good bet. All right, Will, what do you reckon? Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear what it actually sounds like. I don't know if they've released any videos of what it sounds like, but they, they talk about it having a very distinctive sound <laughs> um pricing is yeah a big question mark at the moment i mean they've detailed basically everything except for pricing yeah um i it would it would want to be um less than around 70k considering you can get a cooper born for a decent chunk less than that and that has pretty similar performance figures so we'll have to wait and see 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, that wraps up this week's car news. You can find out more at carexpert.com.au, as Jade has mentioned. The 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee is here, and Scott Colley has had the chance to get behind the wheel. G'day, Scully. Hello, guys. Um, now, what did you think of the, uh, the the Grand Cherokee? Is this the first time you've uh, driven one? It's the first time I've driven one of the new ones. Uh, we've driven the Grand Cherokee L. We've done a few variants now, which is the seven-seat version of this car. But the five-seater, which is kind of a really important car for Jeep, has taken a while to get here. So it's our first experience of the five-seat Grand Cherokee. All of our reviews on the site are either for the previous gen or the seven-seat Grand Cherokee L, which shares quite a bit with the car that we're talking about today, but is also significantly longer and a little bit more expensive. Okay. So how much are we up for this one? So pricing starts at a fairly reasonable 77,950, but we tested the Overland, which is currently the range topper. There's a Summit Reserve coming with a plug-in hybrid that'll cost more again. The Overland has a list price of 98,450, and then our car came with two options packs on it. It also had the luxury tech group and the off-road group, which adds $7,250 to the price for a sticker price around 105 grand before on-roads. So it is not a cheap car, and Jeep has said it wants to be a premium brand. This pricing puts it in line with some pretty premium competition, starting with the Volvo XC90 and sort of extending to the Audi Q7. Is the engine suitable enough for the car? That, Mandy, is a good question. Um, well, um, so yeah, on the uh, on the previous gen car, there were quite a few different engine options. There was a V8 option. You could get a diesel as well. You could even get a crazy supercharged Trackhawk. In Australia at launch, this car will only come with a naturally aspirated 3.6 litre petrol V6, and it's got 214 kilowatts and 344 newton meters. Jeep will bring the plug-in hybrid version of this car to Australia ideally later this year, potentially early next. But for now, at least, the, the Grand Cherokee is available with one engine. And look, Australia for, for towing and for off-roading loves diesel. It's very different to America in that sense. But Stellantis as a group is moving away from diesel power. So, uh, yeah, we get the petrol V6. And to be honest, it's, it's probably the one of the weak links in what the car does. Claim fuel economy is about 10 litres per 100 Ks. We saw more than that in the real world. So it's quite thirsty. But even beyond that, the way it delivers its performance just isn't that nice. Driving an XC90, you get a small petrol engine and then a mild hybrid system, but it's quiet, it's refined, and it feels really punchy. It doesn't need to drop down three gears to give its performance. The Grand Cherokee is fine around the city. It sort of slurs around and just kind of does its thing quietly in the background. But when you put your foot down or you're going a little bit faster, it just it needs to work hard to deliver its performance. You put your foot down, it drops a couple of gears, the revs fly, you get V6 noise and Sounds fine for a V6, but V6s are not known for being tuneful engines. This is a $105,000 luxury family car, and the engine just doesn't feel in keeping with what you would expect of a car worth that much. The plug-in hybrid might help with that, but that's going to be coming later in the year, and it's going to be more expensive. So, um, yeah, look, it's perfectly adequate, and we found this car very capable off-road as well, thanks to a whole lot of other stuff it has. It's not like it holds it back in that regard. But if you are going to be doing lots of towing or lots of highway touring, it's a shame that Jeep doesn't offer a a more powerful petrol or a diesel option. How is it in terms of dynamics compared not only to the L but also to other other vehicles this might be? Pitted up against because I mean the Grand Cherokee, um, you know, historically has kind of been a bit of a rival for the likes of the Prado and 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 those kind of body on frame SUVs that aren't known for being particularly dynamic. So where does the Grand Cherokee fit in the grand scheme of things? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned the Prado. Um, the previous gen Grand Cherokee was a massive seller for Jeep. Uh, there was a year in 2014, it sold 30,400 cars overall, and the Grand Cherokee was more than half of them. Um, and it went head to head with cars like the Prado, the Ford Territory, and then I suppose it was kind of a more affordable alternative to maybe a Merc ML or a BMW X5 because it looked so good. This new one, I wouldn't call a Prado rival anymore given what it costs and how it's been pitched. But yeah, handling-wise, it sort of sits between something like a body-on-frame off-roader and then a more road-oriented car like the XC90 or the X5. Our Overland had air suspension and it also had off-road-oriented tyres, which obviously have an impact on the way it handles. Um, It never feels small. You get quite heavy steering at low speed. um, But on the flip side of that, it's very comfortable. Uh, Even in its sort of lowered aero ride height, it does a good job keeping bumps and stuff out. And with the car in its normal height or its sort of right jacked up off-road height, it has this really lovely relaxed feeling about it. In terms of handling, it feels like less of a big bus than the Grand Cherokee L. That car, although it's nicely tied down, it just feels huge. This doesn't, which is a, a real step forward. Um, it's not a sports car, but I do think if you are buying one of these and you sort of get the urge to, to get moving in a hurry, it, it won't punch you off the road like uh, like maybe some old four-wheel drives would have. Um, I suppose the trade-off for that is the fact that if you do go off-road, uh, we did a set of basic tests at Lang Lang with this and it walked through them all with flying colours. So as standard equipment, the Overland gets um, all sorts of off-road kit including a more sophisticated four-wheel drive system than other models with the proper two-speed transfer case, um, active damping, and then the off-road group that we had added to our car had a, a reinforced rear axle, an electronic limited slip diff, all-terrain tires, an extra underbody suspension and, um, and fuel tank shielding. Um, and that means that if you do want to take the family somewhere beyond just normal fire trail, you can put the air suspension right up high and just kind of cruise over stuff that there's no way I would do in an XC90 or an X5. Um, it, it really is It is capable off-road if you're willing to to take your $105,000 family SUV into the wilderness and rich get it, risk getting it uh, scratched, which I suppose does trade off some of the fact that on the road, although it's not uncomfortable or anything like that, it doesn't feel quite as sporty to drive as some of its rivals. Scully, it goes up against things like the Defender 110P400S, which has, I'm just reading this, um, 294 kilowatts and 550 newton metres. And obviously every Defender is pretty capable off-road. And that's only 99.5 plus on-road, so even cheaper. Uh, And, uh, I mean, is, is this Jeep got a chance with vehicles like that? Yeah, Crawford's a good question, uh, and I don't have a good answer for you. I think Jeep has acknowledged the fact it's not going to sell as many Grand Cherokees as it used to because the car is more expensive now. So I do think Jeep's aware of, of the fact that maybe it's not going to hit the sales heights it once did. Um, so Sorry, someone's drilling on the oh roof of our office. Um, the, the Grand Cherokee name does carry some weight in Australia. So many of them are sold, and that was the car they really focused on with that you bought a Jeep ad that everyone still knows. So I think that's going to help. I think also, if you do look at the lineup, although the Overland is quite expensive at, call it 105 with the options fitted to ours, you can get into a base model um, or a limited for significantly less. Uh, the base model car, yeah, starts at 77,950 and it's pretty well equipped. 
Uh, you get all sorts of stuff inside. You get a decent sound system, a big digital instrument cluster, suede and faux leather trim, dual zone climate, heated front seats, all that sort of thing. I think for that sort of money, it looks fantastic. It's spacious inside and the name does carry some weight. It's going to be competing with top-end Santa Fe, Sorrentos, that sort of thing, and that's where it's going to do its best work. Now, the interior, though, um, and I think we've probably said this on the podcast before, it looks fantastic, but uh, it's not perfect, is it, Scott? No, it is not. Um, This is a frustrating story to tell because we've been saying it about Jeeps for a little while and the brand says it's working on it, but all of the Grand Cherokee L's and now this Grand Cherokee that we've had have just not felt as good as they've looked. Um, some of it is really basic stuff, like the indicators feel brittle and kind of nasty when you split them. Some of it is stuff that feels more related directly to the build quality. There's sort of these like bits of plastic that link the transmission tunnel to the dashboard. And on every single Grand Cherokee we've had in varying degrees of brokenness, call it, They've been really wobbly. Um, In this Grand Cherokee, there was actually damage on the plastic because it had been overlapping with the dashboard trim. Um, The buttons on the steering wheel and that finishing feels really cheap and nasty. They're all what should be really simple things to fix and fixing them would make this Grand Cherokee feel so much closer to worth its price. But as it stands, it, it feels like a car that has a whole lot of really lovely stuff to dress it up but some of the fundamentals are still not there. And that's really disappointing because if Jeep is going to evolve into this premium brand it wants to be in Australia, it needs to appeal to more people than just the people who love Jeeps previously. It needs to appeal to people who are cross-shopping it with an XC90 or an X5 or a Q7. Um, And having spent a lot of time in the XC90 in particular, everything you touch in that car feels solid. All of the materials are really nicely thought out. The way the, the cover over the cup holders slides back has been damped beautifully. Everything that looks like metal is metal. Unfortunately, American cars are kind of up against it when it comes to stereotypes about build quality. But the only way to get around that is to actually fix the problem. And although I don't question when Jeep says it's working on improving its reliability and its build quality, it's working on improving its network of uh, parts supply for dealers if something does go wrong, it's frustrating to sit in the car and poke and prod trim pieces and bash your knee on things that undermine that feeling of quality and do make you question some of the stuff they've said. And and Jeep can say, oh, look, well, the Grand Cherokee is not an an XC90 or an X5 rival in the US or whatever, even though it is priced above, you know, Ford and Chevy rivals. Um, But, you know, if you get into a Kia Sorento or Hyundai Santa Fe or a Mazda CX-9 or whatever, we we don't see these kind of little build quality issues and, 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 um, yeah, things that just haven't been thought out. So it, it's disappointing. I really hope that that they do um, work on that, and that they that there is a more consistent level of quality um, across across the vehicles, because it's genuinely a really good looking interior. Um, that's just let down by those little <clears throat> issues. Um, yeah, that's true, guys. Um, but the Jeep uh, Cherokee that we drove last week, the seven seater in our special project. Um, we love that spec, even in white with that tan leather. It was just uh, beautiful. Um, it really was. Um, and I think I commented to Will how, you know, genuinely luxurious that spec looked. So to hear of these little niggling um, uh, trim issues is quite disappointing. 
Um, I can't wait to drive the plug-in hybrid 4xe when it comes here, um, but I think there's probably one other powertrain missing from the Grand Cherokee lineup. It's, it's not necessarily a diesel. It's the new Hurricane inline-six engines um, that have debuted in the Jeep Wagoneer L and Grand Wagoneer L. Twin turbocharged um, inline six petrol engines with really competitive power and torque figures. Mm-hmm. Um, that would give the Grand Cherokee a shot in the arm. Now, I have driven um, n- not the two row, I've only driven the Grand Cherokee L. I think the power is sufficient. It doesn't feel as um, uh, as slow as perhaps the, the outputs on paper make it appear. Um, and I'm somebody who oh, I think almost every car I've had has had a naturally aspirated six-cylinder engine. So I'm, I'm very used to that level of, um, you know, the, the way that the torque, the power is doled out. Um, but, yeah, when, when Jeep is pushing themselves as a more premium brand here and their pricing is going up against German premium brand rivals, um, all of which offer, you know, lovely turbocharged engines, petrol and diesel, um, then it it, it makes it seem a little bit underdone in that respect. And if it was a little bit cheaper, maybe that would be fine. Um, But, um, yeah, hopefully the 4xe um, comes here and and performs well and uh, is well-priced, and hopefully that hurricane gets under the hood eventually. Yeah, and don't forget Defender too. I mean, that, that they've lifted their game enormously in terms of the luxury fit out and, you know, they're, they're infallible when it comes to off-road ability. Um, and when you get them cheaper than what this is um, with just as much room, if not more, then you've got to, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough road for those guys. Um, dare I say it's going to be like the Rubicon Pass. Gordon. <laughs> nice. Croff, I, I agree with you on the uh, the Defender thing because I, I think the Defender is evidence of how to really effectively rebirth an icon. Um, yeah. We have recently had a Defender through our office and compared to everything else we had, Land Cruiser, Patrol, all those other big four-wheel drives, you look at those and, and we know what they are and I'm sure most people kind of loosely know what they are. There is no mistaking the Defender for anything but a Defender. And it manages to blend old school looks, sort of, but with a modern interior and a modern driving experience like very few other cars. I think the Grand Cherokee, although it doesn't have quite the history of the Defender, it it does feel caught between two worlds a little bit. It feels caught between Jeep as a mainstream American brand and what a Grand Cherokee used to be in the US and then Jeep as a premium brand that it's trying to be in Australia. Um, it's sort of a little bit lost. It's not as confidently executed. And I have no doubt that when hopefully that hurricane you were talking about, Will, arrives and the 4xe arrive, the car will make a lot more sense. But as it stands at the moment, you're right. It doesn't feel like it's fully modernized and fully dragged the nameplate forward like maybe it could have. Finally, Scully, what car expert rating did you give it? Uh, it's scored a 7.7 out of 10. Looking forward to getting some cheaper variants through because I do think that the value for money equation will really improve and the car will probably score better. Awesome. Well, you can see that at carexpert.com.au now. It is out with the XV and in with the Crosstrek for Subaru's latest family off-road. And James Wong has had the chance to give this car a bit of a spin. Now, is this effectively a rebadged XV or have there been some massive changes? 
Yeah, it's it's sort of a funny thing, isn't it? Because um, elsewhere in the world, the XV was called the Crosstrek, and then here it was called the XV, and now they've just called it the Crosstrek everywhere now. So technically, it was already a Crosstrek, but now they've changed <laughs> it. So, um, so for people who don't know what the Crosstrek is or remember really what the XV is, it's basically a lifted Impreza. Um, people may have forgotten what the Impreza looks like because there hasn't been a new one for a while, but there is a new one coming. Um, Subaru's done a little bit of a um, change up this time around with this new generation in that the Crosstrek was actually the first one to be revealed and launched to the market, whereas the um, Impreza is now playing second fiddle, and that's just to do with how SUVs have sort of taken over as the vehicle of choice these days. Um, But there will still be an Impreza and a Crosstrek um, on the market in Australia, as it is the case overseas. So uh, what sort of pricing are we looking at, Joe? Uh, so the Crosstrek now starts at thirty four nine ninety plus on road costs, which is a couple of or just under two grand more than the old um, XV, and then it tops out at forty five thousand and ninety dollars for the flagship hybrid. So as with the old range, there are three distinct petrol variants: the two. 2.0 L, 2.0 R, and the 2.0 S. Um, the R replaces the old premium, uh, and then the hybrid versions or the e-boxer versions get an L and an S variant as well. So yeah, you're covering that mid to mid thirty thousand dollar bracket through to the mid to high forty thousand dollar bracket once you include on-road costs as well. So it has gone up by a little bit between eighteen hundred and three thousand dollars, depending on the model that you're choosing, uh, but it's still fairly you know, par for the course in terms of where other rivals, um, particularly from the the key, you know, Japanese and European brands, if you discount the Chinese, um, are sitting at in terms of price position. Jay, well, where does this sit in the in their in Subaru's sales tally in terms of its success? Uh, so the XV is actually one of their more popular models. Uh, the, in Australia, since the first generation launched about a decade ago, they've sold over 100,000 just in Australia alone. And then globally, it's been quite a successful product for them. Uh, last I checked, because I had a, a chat with um, the managing director for Subaru Australia, uh, Blair Reed, during my time on the launch, and he was saying that they expect the Crosstrek to actually go back up to where the XV was um, before it went out of production. So it typically accounted for about a quarter of Subaru's overall volume. So it's in their top three um, nameplates at the moment. The Forester and the Outback are doing really good numbers. And I think with the X, well, no, sorry, not the XB, the Crosstrek getting a, an, an overhaul um, and sort of aligning itself now with the latest range of Subaru products, because the old one was a bit long in the tooth. Um, I think that it, it definitely has um, all the makings of something that can be one of their top sellers. And it's in one of the most competitive segments um, in the Australian market while also offering a point of difference in that it can genuinely do, you know, light to moderate off-roading, which most of its rivals would not be able to do in the slightest. Mm, I was just about to ask, what is its closest rivals? Um yeah, it's a good question. If you look at it as a jacked-up hatchback that's sort of masquerading as an SUV, you can look at everything from like a Volkswagen T-Roc to the CX-30 because it is on the smaller side. It's not really a bespoke SUV body like a, you know, a Kia Seltos or a, you know, Havel Jolly on those sort of larger, boxier alternatives or a Qashqai, for example. Qashqai is quite large by comparison. It's more like a Mazda CX-30 T-Roc rival um, in terms of something with equivalent levels of off-road ability. You'd really need to be looking at something like a Suzuki Jimny or a, a Jeep Compass uh, Trailhawk, really. Um, 
So it's sort of it, it, what it offers because the, the, the Crosstrek has, I think, two, has 220 millimeters of ground clearance, which is actually quite a lot for a vehicle of this size and price. Um, there's not really anything else in the class with the exception of the Jimny and, and, and the higher all-wheel drive versions of the Jeep Compass that offer that kind of clearance. And um, having standard all-wheel drive is also another point of difference. Not a lot of brands offer that from the base level. So the Crosstrek sort of has this funky, you know, place in the market where you know a lot of other rivals these days have moved away from offering high ground clearance and and all-wheel driver stand and things like that whereas a lot of them now are just higher riding hatchbacks with uh main intentions of being used on the road and in town so it is an interesting uh pitch okay well the hybrid for subaru has not been one that offers a great deal more performance if any um, is that something like why would you pay for the money for the hybrid? Is it just the extra trim? Uh, well, no, the Hybrid L and the Hybrid S are effectively identical in terms of specification to the equivalent petrol. Um, we didn't get to drive them on the launch because they weren't uh, docking in time in Australia for the uh. for the event. So well, I've booked us into one in Melbourne uh, mid-next month, so I'm very keen to get behind the wheel of that and, and see if they've made any improvements. But basically, while in, in, this, in the case of the Crosstrek, it's a little bit different to the Forester because in the Forester, we get the two-and-a-half-litre engine that, um, for example, Europe doesn't get um, and the the two and a half liter petrol is a bit more powerful than the two liter hybrid whereas in the cross trek the two liter hybrid is effectively the two liter the normal two liter engine with the electric motor and battery bolted on while all the specs on paper look fairly similar both the petrol and the hybrid are now rated as um, euro 6b um, compliant in terms of their emission standards so that i think that's a, a whole grade up on the old one i think the old ones were rated for euro 5 uh, but the in terms of how it drives i can't tell you that just yet but they have made a lot of developments to the petrol one and it's got a an updated transmission that drives much better than what I recall of the the last XV that I drove. So if they've made similar levels of advancements to how the 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 eBoxer hybrid one drives and delivers its power day to day and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I think it could be an an opportunity for them to sort of claw back some ground. Apparently, twenty percent of um, Crosstrek pre-orders were for the hybrid, so people are still buying them, um, and it's about a three and a half grand premium for it. And I know a lot of people will look at the combined fuel consumption claim and not even see a litre difference and be like, "Well, why would you bother?" Mm-hmm. But I think um, it's worth calling out that um, hybrids do their best work on the urban cycle, which is you know where you're driving it in the city or doing the school drop-off or, you know, shops and things like that. And in on that cycle, the Crosstrek hybrid claims to save about two litres on the on, uh, on official testing, which is a lot more substantial and a lot more worthwhile. Um, but again, I can't really comment on whether it's worth it until I actually get a steer and can definitively say whether it's, you know, you can make do with any compromises or, you know, price ch- discrepancies between the two different powertrains. Yeah, does it have the um, roof racks that uh, break out and onto the crossbars like the Outback used to or does? We saw an accessorized vehicle that had crossbars on it, but I think that was an additional accessory. Right. Um, I know that I know that the current Outback offers that, um, and this is sort of like an Outback Junior. But yeah. um, we didn't get to play around with the <laughs> with the roof racks. We were very busy driving all day between Sydney and Newcastle, and we even did some off road trails. And mm. these days, a lot of launches are one up in a car, so you're sort of just focused on being in the driver's seat 
getting an interview or having something to eat between <laughs> between stops <laughs> and then getting back on the road again. But um, there was a really cool accessorized vehicle there at our lunch stop, which, is, which was at the, the top of a, I can't remember which mountain it was, but it was out in the Hunter Valley. And um, we had some really wonderful views and they had this um, orange cross trek set up with like a, a rollout roof tent and a picnic set up and cool. accessorized wheels and that kind of thing. So, mm. you know, they're, they're really, they're really leaning on the, the life style and an adventure part of their brand these mm. days and um the cross trek really is like an outback junior so if the outback is a little bit big for you which for a lot of people it will be given mm. how large the new one is um the cross trek is a really great alternative and much obviously much more affordable for perhaps singles and couples that don't necessarily need to put prams in the boot because the boot's quite small um but want something that can do a camping trail or that kind of thing, or they just like having the surety of all-wheel drive in adverse weather conditions. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think it sits on its own, like for you know uh, MTB riders and people that want to go off and kayak or whatever. Like you know, it's 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 a bit unique in that segment, isn't it? Like in Absolutely, many respects. Yeah. yeah. Well, my next question was uh, how exactly family friendly is it? You just touched on how small the boot is, but what about the uh, back seat? Uh, the back seat is still, you know, it is just literally a jacked up Impreza. And I think given with all the hardware that they have to allow for the all wheel drive system, it does sort of impede on the rear passenger accommodation. So it was a snug fit behind my own driving position. So anyone that's carrying around tall friends or teenagers or whatever and you're a taller driver yourself it may be a bit of a tight squeeze i would say my golf probably has a bigger back seat than the crosstrek um and it also doesn't have things like air vents but it does have charging ports back there i believe so um (laughs) you are a lanky individual jaywo so i i am i've got good reach it helps me on the baseline when i'm trying to reach for um someone's attempted winner on a forehand but anyway digressing there'll be many winners when we play jaywo yes i'm not sure you'll actually see them coming um, well, if in my cross track, I'll be able to make a very um, difficult tennis court access, <laughs> which you may not be able to in your Mustang. But um, anyway, I think we're getting off topic. Um, but yeah, so the the boots also redu- reduced in size by about fifteen liters, which is disappointing. It's quite a shallow mm. um, boot area, which. Mm. Again, it, it really just depends on how you're planning to use the car. A lot of people, if it's just one or two people in the car and you've got a lot of camping gear and stuff to put in there, you just fold down the seats and it o- opens up quite a large space. You've got roof racks that can carry a pod or a tent or a, or a this and a that, um, which allows for more storage. So, I, But I think it's worth calling out that it isn't as well packaged in the rear seats and the boot as a lot of rivals are, um, but that is something that we're seeing a lot now in this kind of segment where manufacturers are sort of having to choose between making something look good or, you know, fit for purpose or they just make it a box on wheels and slap a badge on it. So, so James, how does it drive? <laughs> very, um, very to the point. Um it drives like uh, an XV or a Crosstrek. Um, it, it, the, the core DNA is still there. So it still has a naturally aspirated boxer engine with a CVT. It still is, you know, a, a passenger car with a pretty significant ride height lift. But what Subaru is really focused on, and they actually had um, one of the engineers, the lead engineers out of um, Subaru Corporation in Japan come out and talk to us about some of the developments that have been made to the car. They've really focused on refinement 
and reducing things like noise and vibration and harshness. And that was something that we really got to get a feel for because the the drive that we were doing was from uh, Norwest in Sydney up to Newcastle. So we're driving up the Pacific Highway. We're going through the Hunter Valley on winding country roads. And there's so many different surfaces that and, and conditions that you get on a drive like that. And, um, you know, I've long made the joke that Sydney highways are horribly surfaced and they have so many joins and, you mm. know, slab slab blocks and things like that, that it's almost like being on a train sometimes where you hear that. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, we were driving the cross track at, you know, 110 kilometers an hour uh, with cruise control engaged on some of these highways that are quite hilly um, in these sections. And, you know, I was actually quite impressed with how, it's, it's very easy for an engineer to come out and give you a lot of spin about what they've apparently done to make a car f- feel better on the road. Um, but I felt like a lot of this stuff really made a difference because I actually reviewed a high-spec XV at the end of last year. And while the fundamentals and, and the looks and everything were quite cool, I felt that that was something that was really an issue with the old one is that it felt tinny. You know, when you put your foot down, the engine sends noise and vibrations right through the cabin and you feel it in your bones sort of thing. Um, this one is much, much more refined. Um, the the engine still doesn't have a whole lot of power. It's only got 115 kilowatts, which isn't a lot. Um, but it does a really good job um, in tandem with that new uh, CVT transmission and getting the best out of that engine. And they've done a lot to minimize powertrain noise. So that was one of the biggest things I noticed is that going up a hill at 110 k's an hour or, you know, trying to do an overtake, while you're not going to necessarily get there quickly, um, it was revving at like 4,000 RPM at one point. And unless you sort of heard the engine note coming through the firewall, but it wasn't anywhere near a level where you would really be taking notice like, oh, this car's working hard. It's very, very um, insulated in that respect. Um, there have been developments made to the roof uh, construction as well to minimize, you know, the sort of boomy noise that comes in around your head level, which I thought was um, a notable uh, improvement as well. So people who are using this for touring into the country and things like that, which is part of an adventurous car, you need to be able to travel to these kind of places on roads that perhaps aren't perfect where the old one may have, you know, had your brain coming out your ears with all the noise. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is, is significantly rep- improved in that respect. You've given the Subaru Crosstrek a car expert rating of 7.9 and that review is live now. That brings it into this week's podcast. Hey, Will, I noticed uh, during the week on our socials, there's something big coming. Can you elaborate at all? Yeah, so it's part of the reason why uh, we didn't actually have a podcast last week because we were all very busy, all hands on deck, people from Sydney, like uh, Tony here, uh, people from Brisbane, people from Melbourne, all helping out on a big project. Um, so we've, we've put up a, a couple of teasers that you've probably seen by now on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and and just stay tuned um, because there's going to be some really, really, really cool content coming um, from that. Good stuff. All right. Well, um, what other cars have we got coming up in the garage for the following week then, Will? Well, fewer than <laughs> fewer than last, last week, week. <laughs> <laughs> which will make it a lot easier. So, Tony, you are driving a Ram 1500 Limited. Uh, which so is- big, Will. I <laughs> <laughs> You've got off-street parking. What are you complaining have, about? But it is, and it is on the street as it speaks, taking up three car spots. Um, <laughs> and it is black and it's uh, magnificent. It, the luxury in this thing, you don't need a limo, you just need a Ram. 
That's yeah. it. <laughs> having sat in our in our in our Ute Mega Test, having sat in the back seat of one of those, you can fit three full size adult males yeah. side by side in that what? back seat. It's so comfortable. A pretty flat floor as well. Oh yes. Big it's, boys too. I'm talking our size. You can put three of them in the back. <laughs> Uh, you could fit Albors, Tony, and Paul exactly. in the same row. I'd be the smallest there, Will. <laughs> um, smaller vehicles in uh, in Melbourne, though. Um, we do have a Subaru Crosstrek coming through the garage. So, obviously, James spoke earlier um, about his launch review of that. We've got a Peugeot 308 GT Sport plug-in hybrid, uh, one of several new wow. Peugeot plug-in hybrids that have come down under. Um, we also have a Mazda CX-5 G35 GT. TSP or wheel drive. <laughs> Take a breath after saying that. Um, and we'll also have an Audi SQ7 through the garage as well. Excellent mix of cars there. All right. That brings an end to this week's podcast. We thank you, Tony Crawford and William Stockford. Thanks so much, Mandy. We thank you, Mandy. <laughs> <laughs>